So as you know very well, institutions are as good as the people that you have around you. And the minute that you're a big uh, soccer fan, the minute you start getting a good goalie and getting a good technical director and getting a good team of people, quickly you start attracting other good people. I have to thank you because in the midst of this crisis with everything that you had to deal with, you never forgot Latin America. And when we had something urgent, I get on the phone and I remember talking to you how we needed some uh, lines with the Fed, especially with the larger systemically risk important countries like Mexico and Brazil. And you did that within literally hours. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, the chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Luis Alberto Moreno. Luis Alberto is president of the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, commonly known as the IDB. Since taking the helm in 2005, he's consolidated the IDB's role as a principal source of long-term financing for Latin America and the Caribbean, while providing cutting-edge knowledge and technical advice for social, economic, and institutional development. Before joining the bank, Luis Alberto served as Colombia's ambassador to the United States for seven years. Prior to his ambassadorship, he had a distinguished career in business and government. Luis Alberto, Welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Hank, and it's an honor to be here with you, and uh, what a great pleasure. Well, as I think about this conversation today, I'm really looking forward to it. And taking a walk down memory lane, I remember well the first time I met you. You, you had heard that my wife, Wendy, was an avid birder, and you came to my office at Goldman Sachs, you were the Colombian ambassador to the U.S. at that time, and you brought this magnificent book, Birds of Columbia. And for those that don't know it, Columbia has about 2,000 species of birds, which are about one-fifth of the global total. So this was quite a book. And you tried to persuade me that we should take a birding expedition to Columbia. Now, we did a lot of things after that before I actually took the birding expedition. But about 10 years later, after I'd left Treasury, you had worked with me on putting together a Latin American Conservation Council. We had the first meeting in Cartagena. After the meeting, we met with President Santos. And then we flew to this magnificent, pristine area on the Pacific coast of Colombia, Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. And it was really beautiful. And I know you remember all that, but what I also recall is you actually seem to be pretty interested in birding and pretty good at it. So perhaps that gift of the bird book was more than a clever ploy to entice me to, to visit that country. But anyway, it was a, that was quite a trip. Well, Hank, thank you very much. And, and let me say, look, it's equally an opportunity not only to thank you, but to, as you go down memory lane, as you mentioned, it was almost now uh, 22 years ago, and I remember going to see you because the Colombia of 22 years ago was in really bad shape. This was a country that most experts inside and outside of Colombia thought that Colombia was not viable, that it was basically a failed state. And it's essentially required not only 
beefing up the capacity of the state to fight back uh, the insurgency of the FARC and the narco-trafficking, but equally to do what you must do in any country that is facing something like this and is to invest in its people and to find ways to improve. So after researching you and, and knowing that the, you had this love of birds that, as we all know you, comes really from Wendy, which transmitted to you, I went to see you at Goldman, hoping to get you interested in Colombia. Much, much to my surprise, Wendy had already been all over Colombia watching birds. And I frankly didn't know much about birds. The little I, I started to learn was from her. And she told me something that was fascinating is that when you get a country that has at least 2,000 different species of birds, you can begin to lay the groundwork for serious birding expeditions and tourism which, by the way, is the most environmental kind of friendly tourism that one can develop because it's not intrusive. People love to work with nature, as, as you have done so many times. So essentially, that was kind of our journey together. And I remember when you were first nominated to be Secretary of the Treasury, and you, you were very kind to reach out. And I said, no, I know you. I was the one who went to talk to you about birds. And you, of course, remembered. And then we went through, you know, this amazing process, which you were in the midst of managing the financial crisis and, and everything else. But, you know, certainly Colombia in those years have cha has changed the, for the better. You're right in this conservation council that you put together, which was wonderful, not only getting very uh, significant people from our hemisphere who really have a passion for conservation, but equally getting from U.S. global companies. And I think that mix has really delivered on, on a lot of areas, but at the same time, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I'm glad you reminded me of where Columbia was 20 years ago and where it is now, because we see this time and time again. I see it with nations and you see it with companies. If you get the right leadership, it's amazing what happens and what can happen and in a relatively short period of time. Now, I'm going to now turn to the IDB and talk a bit about what you accomplished there. But before we do that, I would like to just give the listeners an elevator speech about what the IDB is. What is the IDB? The Inter-American Development Bank is not unlike the mission of the World Bank, which as you, as we all know, and I'm sure you've done it a, a lot these days of thinking back in history, I'm sure you did it during the financial crisis, to look at you know, the Great Depression, the many lessons that came out of that, how the US basically built a system in the post-war period, which was the big push that President Roosevelt at the time, as well as uh, Winston Churchill and others really wanted to have a system where we won't have wars again, but basically that countries could prosper. And that brought about what is typically called the Bretton Woods institutions, where Keynes was a, a central actor. But that, as a result of that, equally came, and about the same time, a discussion at the time of President Eisenhower and then President of Brazil, Juscelino Kubitschek, which was a very important leader in the history of Brazil. And the two of them came on this idea of what they called the Pan American Association. It's, it's what you know, you go back in history, even coming from the days of how the, this union started. And even then, you know, you remember the U.S. wanted to be very independent. They didn't want to get involved in all the conflicts with Europe. But they also wanted a very independent kind of neutral region to be Latin America. And so there was always these ideas to connect the Americas. It is in that context that he launched this idea of the Pan-American operation that included, among other things, a development bank. 
and a development bank that was largely owned and run by Latin Americans, where they have 51% of the shares, or a little less than 51. And the rest was the US, the major shareholder, which was really the, the one that facilitated this whole uh, creation of the bank. And then eventually came countries in Asia and in Europe. And the mission of the bank is about development. Uh, what does that mean? It means it used to be the very basic things of providing public goods from water and sanitation to electricity to developing sanitary systems around health, doing things in the area of education. And then, of course, supporting many of the structural reforms that countries need to do such that they become much better in terms of their productivity and effectiveness in how they deliver their public investment. And over the years, of course, new things came around. Certainly, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals, on which, of course, climate change become very important. And as a result, this is essentially what we do, as well as development that can be done through the private sector, which is increasingly a very important element today. And this is about supporting small businesses, which generate tremendous amounts of jobs, and equally developing private-public partnerships around areas of infrastructure. I already went about 50 floors, but in essence, that's kind of what the mission of the bank is. And it's amazing because it's done by 48 governments, which are shareholders of the bank, and they all try to get together around this mission. And it's a very important mission. Now, Luis Alberto, I've watched you transform the bank, professionalizing it and adapting it to respond to Latin America's needs. What do you see is the most important change under your leadership? What are you proudest of in the 15 years you've been there? Because there's been major, major changes. And I've watched them big time in even the last 10 years. Well, Hank, I always tell you, you've really been a mentor to me all these years. And you always say something that I really took to heart, which is, you know, the way to really, really change institutions is to have an expansive way of looking at them, a very ambitious kind of agenda that essentially allows you to put a very hard market for yourself. Even if you don't get there, just it puts you on a trajectory. So what do I feel pr the proudest? I think the team that we've assembled, because as you know very well, institutions are as good as the people that you have around you. And the minute that you're a big uh, soccer fan, the minute you start getting a good goalie and getting a good technical director and getting a good team of people, quickly you start attracting other good people. And so over these years, I think we've managed to get a, not only a very strong leadership team, but just as important, a very strong bench. Because I think if you don't have a strong bench, you don't have the kinds of people that can rise to different areas. The other part is to continually understand it's very easy for big bureaucracies to be isolated. And so one of the areas that I think I've devoted a lot of time is to make always sure that we're reaching out, that we're listening where changes are, that the people truly can grow within their jobs. I think more important than having a title is how people grow inside their jobs. And so that's another aspect that we have done. And that, of course, means a lot of career path development, a lot of continuous education for people, giving them the possibilities to constantly are looking at, at other areas. And so that, to me, is probably the single most important accomplishment. And then, of course, as you go deeper, you know, having been able to take a very small private sector arm of the bank and make it into something very substantive. When I got to the bank, we had 
is small, what we call the, at the time, the Inter-American Investment Corporation, it lent about $150 million. We then converted that and capitalized it in what we call IDB Invest. This year we'll be lending over $7 billion. These are all around uh, development projects, but more importantly, is thinking that this can become platforms whereby you can mobilize far more resources. A lot of what the work that you used to do at Goldman, which is, you know, how do you, you get other partners to use your platform and to come in? And for instance, just this first half of the year, we already done about over a billion dollars in third party partners that come alongside with us in, in financing projects and getting co-financing from our own shareholders. We did this, uh, constantly are doing this with, some of the major bilateral donors like Germany or France or Japan or China. And this has, of course, given us more breadth and depth in what we do. And then being able to be on top of the salient issues of the day. And here I mean, you know, technology. I mean, we, we started over seven years ago really getting deep on how to use technology around development projects. And that meant for our staff to really understand the benefit of technology is not enough for me to just talk about it, but really for people to take it on. And today, we're a much more flexible bank. Everything is on the cloud. We can deploy a lot of technologies around projects. And that has served as well as you start to look at all the fundamental changes that we're going to see going forward after COVID. And on the other hand, everything around climate change, which is one of the single biggest challenges of our time, was talking to Brad Smith uh, from Microsoft early this morning, the, the president, and he was saying, you know, this is two book stacks. You know, it's on the one hand is COVID, on the other hand is climate change. And, and so that was another area that we really got in front of and, and developing very interesting instruments and always refining the kinds of financial instruments that we can deploy. And at the same time, always understanding that our true value more than our financing is not only our knowledge, but our capacity to be an independent voice that can bring parties together around the table and facilitate dialogues that governments typically have tremendous difficulty of doing it. And you only achieve that by being credible and being professional. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me, and it's right on that you started with people. Because if you were, someone were to ask me what your greatest strength is, is it you're a people person and you're a connector? And so you, you see the best in people, you figure out how to bring a team together. And in a region which has got a lot of differences, got similarities and differences, but very different leaderships, countries in very different places in terms of their economic development and their political systems, to bring them together and be responsive to that and also work in Washington. It's, it's a people skills are critically important and you see it, you know, I don't care how smart someone is, if they don't have the ability to sell their mission and motivate people, they don't succeed. Now, I would like to now move to the big issue of the day, the global pandemic and its economic consequences. And as you and I have talked about it, it's hitting Latin America particularly hard. So how do you see the governments responding? What do you see as the economic outlook for the region? Well, Hank, let me start at, at the outset to begin to say that just like with health, we had a lot of pre-existing political and economic conditions. And when I say that, let's remember that it was only you know a year ago that you saw many people in the streets of a country like Chile, which you know well, or Colombia or Peru or others, 
who people were in the streets protesting largely because they were demanding not necessarily to have access to education, but the quality of the education. Not necessarily asking for access to, to health systems, but to better quality of health systems. And this is in keeping with, with a region that has been transforming itself over time, but you start to see these big wedges between the quality of public services. So we entered this crisis at the same time when the growth in Latin America on average was very low, and it was very low largely because of the contraction that you had seen or the flat growth and or contraction in both Brazil and Mexico, which brings down the averages, not to mention the issues in Argentina or for that matter in Venezuela. So there's other countries that were doing certainly better than the countries in Central America for the most part, Colombia, Peru and others, which were you know, growing at three, three and a half percent. So as we enter this crisis, which is a global one in nature when you know it's an enemy that, that comes from all sides, countries in Latin America saw this virus expand much slower than it say came to Europe, uh, from Asia to Europe and Europe to the US and then on to Latin America. Uh, but the reality is that what we're seeing today, and as you know well, these numbers were probably gonna be revising as we go forward, we're looking at a contraction of close to 10% this year, which is huge. It's, it's by far the biggest contraction we've seen, even by contrast with the, with the, it's nothing like this in probably 100 plus years. So that has huge implications because that means that into next year, tax receipts will be certainly much lower. And governments have been trying to do what every government's been trying to do, to preserve jobs. And here is, of course, how do you guarantee, especially in those contracts in big companies that keep people at least engaged to companies and don't, don't destroy that. But we have, unlike the rest of the world, very high levels of informality, meaning people that live in the cash economy. And these are people who, whose health is very vulnerable and their economic health is equally vulnerable. And this is where you have seen the spikes in countries like Peru, in countries like Mexico, and of course in, in Brazil as well, as we have today. Today, for every 10 deaths that take place every day, five of those deaths are happening in Latin America. And it, even though most of the lockdowns started like they did in, in the United States around the middle of March, you see the curves and they continue to grow. And the projections are very, very tough, which means that we're gonna be living with this pandemic for some time. So that meant that countries had to begin to think of how to reopen their economies, and how to reopen them directed as which are the sectors of the economy that generate the most jobs. And here, of course, this balance is a very complex one. And so we're in a, in a tough moment where what you're gonna see is that even though countries are trying to control the expansion and the flattening of the curve, the curve on debt is growing significantly. I mean, debt levels are gonna jump from say 60% on average of GDP to close to 75%. At the same time, the curve on increases in unemployment. I mean, the levels of unemployment in Latin America are huge, are now more than double digits, as well as, as the, uh, the poverty rates, which are increasing. And this is very sad because Latin America was able to get close to 100 million people out of poverty in the last uh, decade and a half. And we're seeing that, you know, we're losing a lot of those gains. So this is going to be a major challenge for governments, especially as we enter a cycle of elections that will begin next year. And, you know, at the same time, this is a moment in, in our history where 
people have also shown tremendous amount of empathy where science uh, no longer is something that you look at the, by the wayside. I think science, both for climate change and for the pandemic, have become central. And so these are some of the things that we're going to have to wrestle with, but it's going to take a lot of leadership. And, you know, you worked through the financial crisis. There was a place to go for in the financial crisis where you brought people together, first in Pennsylvania, G20. There has been no international system to respond to this. Everybody has looked at their own kind of challenges. And you already see that in the discussion of what the next the vaccine or the possibility of a new vaccine will look like. Because there is this, this tremendous race on an almost like a, a Wild West kind of market in medical resources. So these are the, the challenges Latin American countries have been facing. Yeah, it's, it's you know, as tough as it's been in the U.S., it is much, much tougher in Latin America. If you have a central bank and a reserve currency and you can print money and keep interest rates low, there's a lot of flexibility. And uh, these countries are being devastated, absolutely devastated. I want to go, you, you mentioned the 2008 financial crisis. You led the IDB through the 2008 financial crisis and you did a great job. What lessons did you take away from that crisis? And how is IDB applying those lessons today as you think about Latin America? Well, first of all, on this, Hank, I have to thank you because in the midst of this crisis, with everything that you had to deal with, you never forgot Latin America. And when we had something urgent, I get on the phone and I remember talking to you how we needed some uh, lines with the Fed, especially with the larger systemically risk important countries like Mexico and Brazil. And you did that within literally hours. And things like this were very important. But what I would say is, you know, I remember you telling me just very, very quickly, just get money out the door as fast as you can don't let a problem of liquidity become a systemic problem. And we saw in the financial crisis something that we're seeing as well now, which was this kind of cascade of downgrades to countries, which automatically creates a huge problem for them to access the markets. And so getting liquidity out, I think, was a very important part of this. I think equally the messaging that we're getting in our case from the U.S. being our largest shareholder to go out and be ready to have more capital, which we essentially did as a result a year later and essentially almost double the size of our capital. That allowed us to really stress our balance sheet and eventually correct it with a capital increase. That certainly in this environment has been very difficult. Equally, I, I think understanding what were the real needs of governments. Now, it is very different from the financial crisis to today. Let me just give you simple numbers. In the financial crisis, the debt to GDP ratios were for average on Latin America about 40%, just a little short of 40%. And the overall surplus was 0.3%. So Latin American countries had benefited, as you recall, from these huge positive wins to the economies coming out of high prices of commodities, largely driven by the big appetite coming from Asia, but especially with China. And that helped Latin America accumulate a lot of reserves and balance the macro account. Last year, you know, January of this year, those debt to GDP ratios were already 60% and the fiscal deficit was on average 3%. So already you had a much weaker situation and you had challenges of growth. So that's how we are entering into this phase 
And of course, that's what makes it very different from the financial crisis. And the other aspect that I think we forget is that the financial crisis was concentrated in the developed economies, and it was the emerging market economies that helped the world economy turn around very quickly. And it was emerging markets who led the process of growth that brought many of, of the developed economies out. Unfortunately here, the level of the water for everybody is very low. I mean, we're all in a situation of recession, which makes it much more difficult for countries that depend to a large degree on foreign trade when foreign trade has collapsed the way it has collapsed. So it's, it's a very different kind of moment. We truly had in the financial crisis a real V-shaped recovery, uh, which then led countries to continue to grow. Unfortunately, we never had problems with, say, our financial system, which was very, very critical. It could have, you know, you had the, the, the case of Europe, for instance, which had a capacity of contagion in Latin America because some of the major European banks operate in Latin America. We never, even though they, they pulled back, we were able to get some of the resources into the countries and, and kept the liquidity going. Yeah, it's a very, very different in some ways, similar in others. But it's much more devastating, much more devastating to Latin America. But what are the prospects for an environmentally friendly recovery in the Americas? How can governments, and we've talked about this a lot, leverage sustainable infrastructure to support their recovery? I know you're giving a lot of thought to that. Well, Haka, I, I don't think there's an alternative. I think clearly you know, as, as always is talked about, where are the jobs, where is the multiplier? You know, when you always wanna see where, where governments invest, where is the multiplier that gives you the growth? And especially if you have weakened private sectors, you're gonna to wanna to see the government expenditure helping drive the growth. And the biggest multiplier, of course, is infrastructure. And here, I don't think we have an alternative. I mean, we truly have to build back better. We have to do it in a way that is much more environmentally friendly. I think in today's environment with the huge amount of liquidity that has been provided by all the major economies in the world, of course, the US and Europe, essentially is going to, to be a moment where we're gonna be in a very low interest rate environment, but equally we can find ways to make projects attractive, especially those projects that have an impact on the environment and on green growth. And for that, it takes a total rethink on the side of governments to say, okay, if I'm gonna do a road through the middle of the Amazon, well, I'm not gonna get any benefit on the contrary. I'm gonna get, like it's happening in Brazil right now, you know, pension funds which have close to $8 trillion saying, we're not gonna invest in your country if you don't do these kinds of things. But those same pension funds will say, hey, but if you're doing something that is sustainable, that has green growth associated with it, I'll be there. So I think this is the opportunity for us to, to develop truly different things on mass transit. I think mass transit is gonna become very important looking at electric driven cars, uh, like we are seeing uh, already happening. Equally, the way we, we build roads, the way financial institutions even look at their own portfolio and looking at buildings that are, for instance, big generators of, of emissions, how they are redone. I think, you know, one of the more fascinating things that we're going to see the world over is as we go back to the office, what those, do those offices look like? How do you really make them more energy efficient? How do you make it more lead type buildings? These are the kinds of things that I think are going to be out there. 
and it's going to require equally a set of tools that in my view, what's gonna make it more attractive is our capacity to lever blended finance. And I mean, is how do you buy down parts of the debt for projects that are providing that kind of impact. And as we you know, sit back, and I remember uh, Larry Fink and others uh, early in January in Davos making this big commitment saying, we wanna be associated with investments that are environmentally friendly. I think that's a huge statement. I think there is a mismatch between those desires and the actual projects. And I think is the, how do we manage that connectivity between the two is going to be the challenge. And that's kind of where I want to take the bank and begin to help in that connectivity and create the way how you can make those flows happen. There's a huge opportunity here and it's a tipping point because we're either going to build it back better or we're going to be in really bad shape. And so there's, there's an opportunity. So I'd like to switch and now talk a little bit about why the average American should care about Latin America. They're our neighbor, and I look at it, and I know you do, we've talked about this, that the United States' major foreign policy focuses have tended to be you know, whether it's the Middle East or China or Russia or whatever, where there seem to be challenges. But yet, if you look at our longer term national security, economic security, stability south of the border right here in our region, and, and opportunities are important. Talk about Latin America. Why should the everyday American who's not an expert in geopolitics or foreign policy, why should the average American care about Latin America? Look, Hank, this is always a, a fascinating question because I think Latin America is many Latin America. It's many countries, it's 36 different countries, the biggest of which, of course, is Brazil, which is 200 plus million people. It's almost as in continental size. If you took away Alaska, it's about the same size of the United States. Then you have Mexico, which is the country perhaps best known by Americans because you have a very big border. People go and spend time there, have vacations. But I think aside from the language differences, which are real, the United States foreign policy has always been driven to a large degree around certainly economic opportunities, but more importantly, around challenges that you have. And so there is a long history of the Atlantic Alliance that goes back to George Washington days and the very early days of the US. There's actually a fascinating book that Bob Selig wrote about this that I've been reading. He's going to be publishing it soon. And, you know, it gives you a very interesting insight into how the US developed across, you know, this very rich Atlantic relationship. And yet it's always been kind of like this missed opportunity in, in having big ideas work in Latin America, partly because of our failure. You recall President Bush uh, and President Clinton tried this big idea of having just a free trade area of the Americas. There were countries who were protectionists for more for political reasons than perhaps economic reasons. And we were not able to manage that. And at the same time, I think we are again in a moment because of the profound changes of COVID, because everything that's happening across supply chains, especially around areas of food and others, that there is a capability to do a big rethink of how to make it in the Americas and not just made in America. And here I think is trying to expand what has already been happening between Mexico and the US, where you largely have trade across companies more than from one company 
selling to a different uh, distributor or whatever. And the other aspect is U.S. companies, unfortunately, through the many financial crises that we had in Latin America, we forget this, but before the 80s, in a period of 20 years, we had something like 25 financial crises. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And nobody likes to lose money, of course. And it leaves for many, many years a sense that, oh my gosh, I, why should I invest there? There's problems. And people don't seem to be able to, to turn the page. And the very same way that a company goes under chapter 11, there's a way that others come in, there's debtors in deep finance and they turn it around. That's the kind of issues that have not been developed sufficiently. I think there's many challenges that we have as Latin Americans in making a, a, an investment-friendly environment. I think it's happening in some countries already, but I think the capacity to put our arms around big ideas in Latin America, we haven't been able to do. And unfortunately, Latin Americans haven't helped either because we have very different kinds of political inclinations that get U.S. policymakers bent out of shape. So it's a big challenge, but I think we are in a moment of a huge opportunity. Yeah, huge opportunity. You focus mainly on the business, and I think you're right on. I'm looking at it now from the U.S. foreign policy side, and I'm saying if you have a situation where there is big economic distress in a region, and if there, that leads to political instability, which it often does, then I think it becomes a national security issue for the United States. And so I think having a stable, secure neighbor on the one hand is very important. And, and I don't think you're going to have stability if you don't have economic prosperity. And so the idea of having the U.S. care about what happens in Latin America, I think, is very positive to protect on the downside. And then on the upside, there are some real opportunities in terms of, you know, economic relationships. And as, you know, we see more decoupling with China, I think there's a real opportunity in Latin America. I, I want to finish and have some fun, finish the discussion on an important initiative where we're both involved, but you in particular have worked with Colombian President Ivan Duque, who you know, worked in the IDB in the early days as a friend of yours, and you worked with him in helping him forge a Letitia pact with nine heads of state whose nations contain the Amazon. So describe the Letitia pact and what IDB is doing to protect tropical forests and biodiversity and promote nature-based solutions to climate change. Because the Amazon Basin is one of the most remarkable natural areas in the world and is vulnerable to climate change and critically important to mitigating climate change. So there's so much going on. This Letitia Pact, I don't think, has gotten much attention. You've been right there. Talk about the Letitia Pact and what you're doing and what the IDEB has been doing to promote this cooperation among the nations that really control the Amazon. Well, this is a fascinating question. You know, when you go back in history, Brazil always had a very strong military think tank and a lot of geopolitical thinking for many, many years. And they always believed that, you know, somehow the Amazon was so, so important to Brazil and to the world that it was probably something that the U.S. and other global powers wanted to take control of. 
And they believed that for many years. The reality is that they believed that because they figured, well, probably that was the one area, the frontier area, not unlike your West at the time, where we knew very little about climate change the way we know today, that somehow that could be developed. And so the Amazon, 60% of the Amazon is sits in Brazil. It is, like you say, the biggest sink for carbon emissions. There's no bigger sink in the world really than the Amazon with amazing kinds of biodiversity from all kinds. You know, I remember a professor I had, Leo Wilson at, at, uh, at Harvard, who wrote, a, as you know, a lot about insects. He would tell you, you know, this is the factory that allows all these diverse types of animals that live there, that need to travel throughout the Amazon, independent of in which country they are. It is equally a great factory of water, of soft water, uh, natural uh, drinking water that, that we all need, that powers agriculture and the rest. And somehow over the years, there's been kind of like this Amazonian type of uh, initiative, but really didn't have any teeth to it and really didn't have any, any traction. It was largely driven by Brazil, but it was more of a political in nature of bringing Amazon countries together than really driving any specific areas of conservation. You know, I'm always reminded, I mean, President Teddy Roosevelt went, as you recall, and almost died in the Amazon, and he, went, and he was this big explorer, and he loved... Of no return, right? Exactly yeah. right. And, and it was, you know, it was this kind of frontier area that everybody was enamored with. And so over a year ago, as you might recall, when we started seeing all these fires in Brazil, largely because President Bolsonaro kind of like opened the floodgates and allowed for people coming in and bringing down the rainforest and beginning to do planting of soya or whatever it was, you know, that had a, a big pushback. And so I talked to President Duque and I said, you know, this is the opportunity to get all these countries together and begin with a plan and a pact that can bring all countries together around thinking of how do you develop in a sustainable way the Amazon. And there is a dimension of cities because you want to have, you know, at the local level, this is very important that people take stock and guard and save areas of the Amazon. Unfortunately, especially as we speak today, in this kind of warm season that we're already starting to have, you know, the levels of, of uh, condensation become very low and it, of course, allows for fires. We're seeing more fires this year than last year in the Brazilian Amazon. And the idea, therefore, was to begin to have countries all together to say, we need to take care of the Amazon. We need to help do it in a way that is sustainable, find ways to protect those communities, prevent people from coming in and just bringing down trees or fires that eventually will kill a lot more of the Amazon, which is dramatic what, what has been burned. And especially even in those areas where you have seen destruction of the rainforest, how can you again plant trees that are local in nature that can come and bring back the kind of canopy that, that, that you have there? And the other aspect is there's a lot of development in, the, in biotechnology that you can do around Amazonian products. You see it already there's a fantastic Brazilian company called Natura that basically has developed all of these set of beauty products associated with Amazonian products. And you see the same in certain kinds of medical development. So these are the kinds of things that I think we should really focus on, uh, really green development for these areas. 
And, uh, and I'm happy to say that, you know, working with you, we've begun to do something similar in Colombia. I think we should begin to have at least a process. And this is the, the, the bottom line of the Leticia Pact. Everybody working together. Unfortunately, everybody feels for the Amazon, wants to do things, but everybody's doing their own little thing. And this is the time to create a critical mass and make a fundamental change. Yes, and what the IDB has done, which is magnificent to start out with, is make good progress on developing a digital platform that will track everything right down to ground level with transparency in terms of what's going on in the region. And then we'll, beginning with Columbia, identify and list the various conservation initiatives and then list funders and sort of to, to bring funding together to match the funders with worthwhile conservation projects. So again, Luis Arbelto, you've been a creative thinker, made a big difference in the region, in IDB. I know you're going to continue to do so in the three or four months you've got left there. And then, you know, it'll be very exciting to see what you do in the next phase of your career, because you've got a lot to give. So again, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Hank. And thank you for all your support and counsel all of these years. It's been really, really critical everything I do and it's always been a, an inspiration to listen and to follow all your energy so it's been a privilege and thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.